few months ago, we held an event to launch our politics issue. We had it at the 519 in Toronto, which is a community center for the queer community in Toronto. And uh, it was hosted by us, Shameless, and put together by our rad events coordinator, Amos Griver. We invited a few storytellers to reflect on a political aspect of their lives and tell us a story about it. We've got Leah and Tessa, who created We Give Consent, a social media awareness campaign aimed at having the concept of affirmative consent, i.e. yes means yes, uh, talk about their uh, talk about how they challenged the Ontario Premier to include consent in the new government-approved sex ed curriculum. We've got Frizz Kid, an artist and writer, talk about their experience with online bullying and then standing up to a bully in real life. We've got the Degenerates, a trans and queer bicycle gang with no bike requirements. They'll do a better job of explaining themselves than I will. And we've got Claire A.H., a sex educator, public speaker, freelance writer, podcaster, and matchmaker. And I just want to say that these folks are talking about their political work in their own words. It was a live event, and they're expressing themselves in their own way. And I just wanted to mention that Ama did a land acknowledgement that sort of got eaten up by my computer in post-production. So I'll repeat it here, and I apologize for any mispronunciation. We'd like to start this event today by acknowledging the Mississaugas of the New Credit, the Had and Osani, the Anishinaabe, and the Huron-Wendat, who are the original owners and custodians of the land on which the event is happening. For thousands of years, they have protected this land, and for hundreds of years, they have resisted colonialism and created a space for us to do the same. I'm your host, Julia De Laurentiis Johnson, and I'm just going to click play on this bad boy. And you can sit back and close your eyes and pretend you were there on that wonderful night. We would have loved to have you, but here's the next best thing. So given the political climate that we're in right now, our newest issue release comes at a very great time. And for this, our storytelling event is so important. We have so many incredible folks that are here tonight who have been advocating for change, and because of their voices, we have seen some positive movement come forward. We're so happy that everyone could make it out tonight, and we're hoping that you'll give a warm welcome to all of our storytellers. First and foremost, we have Andy and Aaron from Project Slut. We have Claire Ah, the members of the Degenerate Toronto Group, Frizz Kid, and Tessa and Leah of We Give Consent. So can I have a round of applause? Just as a housekeeping note, we will be recording this event for our podcast and we will be promoting it via our social networks, so look forward to that. Now, without further ado, I would like to invite Tessa and Leah of We Get Consent up to the stage. Hi there, um, I'm Tessa and this is Leah. Um, and when we were 13, we decided to take on rape culture in our own way. Um, in September of our grade eight year, we were assigned an independent studies project in our media class. Um, it had to focus on a social justice issue, anything that we wanted to do. And um, we were partners because we were also best friends. And we decided to choose a topic around feminism and women's rights because that was something that had always been important to us and something that had affected us. Um, and we were super passionate about it. So um, we, we began to research. We made like a chart, which had like a bunch of different issues around um, women's rights and kind of um, went deep into Google to figure out what we wanted to focus on. 
Um, so we chose rape culture. We didn't really know that much about the term at the time. Um, it's not really something that 13-year-olds tend to talk about um, often. So um, as we started to learn more about it, we started to also see the ways that it connected um, to our experiences, um, what we had experienced and what we will experience in our lives um, through our identity as um, young girls. Uh, and also we hadn't, what we hadn't really realized was that um, rape culture and everything around it um, goes beyond the immediate idea of like the crazy men in the bushes and the cases that society likes to isolate and talk about on um, the general news cycle. I remember being a little girl and my grandma telling me to watch out for strange men on the street like Tessa was talking about, like the crazy man in the bushes. Um, and she would always tell me things like, oh, don't wear clothes that are too revealing and don't walk alone at night. But the thing that she didn't tell me about all of this was that boys, including boys who are my age, um, were being raised and taught to believe that they were entitled to my body. Um, so before this point in our lives, when we started researching rape culture, I never really made the connection between these two ideas. Um, and I never, I, I never identified this to be an issue in society. These were kind of just things that I was taught and I was told and I just respected. Um, and the way in which our bodies were sexualized and as well as other women and women of different, uh, people of color obviously like had a different experience. Um, um, while society was showing me a narrow, narrow idea of sexual violence, it was, it was evident in our experiences that um, that this was a problem and that we needed to talk about rape culture. So th we started making our documentary and we started really connecting all these ideas and stories that other people had told us to um, bigger issues of rape culture and where these ideas were coming from. So for our assignment, um, we chose to make a documentary and part of that um, assignment, the expectation was to interview um, three experts about the issue that we wanted to talk about. So. Um, we ended up interviewing three amazing women and we gained a lot of wisdom from those women who we spoke to. Um, it was almost an accident in a way that we discovered them. We didn't really know anything about like the feminist community in Toronto or um, anything that was like happening around um, uh, like in rape crisis centers and just like generally activism around sexual violence. Um, and we had never interviewed anyone before I didn't even know how to use my camera properly. I didn't know how to like use the settings or anything. So um, we interviewed them and we learned like so, so much. So fast forward three months um, and we had a lot of time to kill. Um, we had already interviewed all of our experts. We had all our footage. The project wasn't due till, oh, awesome. <laughs> um, the project wasn't due till June um, and we were in uh, late December, so we didn't have to edit yet. We had a whole lot of time on our hands. So we weren't really sure exactly what we wanted to do, but we knew that we wanted to do something and we knew that we wanted to take action um, around our issue. So one of the things that came up in um, all three interviews that we did that was super important um, was the idea of creating a consent culture and uh, creating a consent culture in response to ending rape culture. So while girls everywhere are being taught to protect themselves against the threat of sexual violence, no one was being taught, um, or it wasn't being taught enough um, to, um, it wasn't being taught, consent wasn't being taught enough, even though it was an obvious problem and there was a fairly obvious partial solution at the least. 
So at our middle school that we went to, City View Alternative, we had a queer straight alliance and we were sitting in a meeting and our teacher David was talking about how the curriculum hadn't been updated, the sex ed curriculum hadn't been updated since 1998, the sex ed curriculum that we were learning. Um, and we realized that it didn't talk anything about consent and didn't mention anything about LGBTQ issues. Um, this was what we had been learning in our entire school career and children younger than us were learning. And pretty much everybody our age was getting our inf information about sex and relationships from the internet, which we know al isn't always the best place to get that information. Um, personally, the only sex that I remember being taught was it was very minimal, very awkward, and it focused a lot more on STIs and using protection and kind of taught sex in like a fear-based way rather than talking about it in the um, context of relationships and healthy relationships, which I think is very important. And anytime the word sex was mentioned, it was strictly talking about male and female intercourse, and it like it never even like suggested that LGBTQ sex could be a possibility, which obviously we know that a lot of young people have queer identities and should definitely be a part of the curriculum. But what we chose to focus on was that the word consent was not mentioned once in the curriculum, and it didn't make sense to us that the prevalence of sexual violence was so obvious, but nobody was talking about consent, especially in the context of schools, which is a place where we go to learn. Um, and we learned that the curriculum was going to be updated in 2015, so we saw that as a chance to take action. So um, after we had that initial conversation, we started thinking about a lot of different things that we could do. Um, there was talk, and at first we also wanted to do all of them at the same time, uh, which isn't necessarily a great way to spend your time. Um, but um, also, I, you, one can dream. <laughs> um, but um, there was like we wanted to make like a zine. We wanted to sell those zines. We wanted to um, we wanted to do stuff on social media and. Uh, and workshops too, we were talking about doing workshops in our school community and in other school communities around um, dress codes and the importance of consent as well. So what we ended up um, deciding on was doing a petition and a campaign on social media to talk about consent. So, um, I mean, this is the part that we end up talking about a lot, but it, we created a petition and a campaign um, called We Have Consent and the petition ended up garnering over um, 40,000 signatures and we, had a significant amount of media attention, which was kind of surreal and interesting because um, we were also trying to like do the documentary and then um, balance school as well. Like we would end up, there were a few times where I think one time we like sat on the bathroom floor of our, in our middle school and like did an interview, a phone interview with someone um, because, and there was also like sitting in the computer lab um, after we had like decided to do this because um, there wasn't, our school was really small and there wasn't really anywhere to go. Um, and we could, and I think a lot of people didn't really understand that we had to be at school. So people would be like, can we call you at like 2, 2 p.m.? And I'm like, I'm in class. So like, no, <laughs> not really. Um, I can't really leave. So, um, so that was like super intense and like a, a big part of um, uh, raising awareness around the issue. So uh, because of that, and one of the main things was at the very beginning of our campaign, we went on Metro Morning um, and did an interview talking about, I think at that time we almost had a thousand signatures on the petition. So it was like very, very early on um, talking about um, why we thought consent was important to be seen in the curriculum and also why it was important to us as young people to to um, speak 
to everyone and say that this is what we want to learn and this is what is important to us. So because of that, we ended up um, setting up a meeting with the Premier of Ontario, Kathleen Wynne, which was super um, wild. <laughs> um, so in late January 2015, we showed up at Queen's Park. Um, we already had a set meeting, but we sat in the lobby waiting nervously to be cleared by security and go upstairs. Um, so the meeting was going to be half an hour and then followed by a press conference um, announcing the specifics of what about consent would be in the curriculum. So we didn't really know what we were doing at all. Um, I think it's really funny. We, um, we were in grade eight, so we showed up in uh, tattoo chokers and Doc Martens. Um, and it was quite stylish at the time, so, um, so no regrets. Um, <laughs> Except um, one time we, someone wrote an article about us and like the first line mentioned that um, they were like, oh, showed up to meet the premiere and like uh, tattoo chokers and like Doc Martens. And I was like, but also we met the premiere, which is the main, main thing. Um, but um, so we didn't know anything and it happened really quickly and it was, it was, it was super cool and it was, it was strange to be in like Queens Park and, um, be surrounded by all like the amazing like architecture and stuff and then like be there to like <laughs> to like meet um the premiere anyway um so that was that was way that was way way cool but also seemed like a little bit we we weren't like we weren't so nervous that it was like this was what everything was leading up to but it was also super important for us so we were led up to the premier's office where we were by like a city TV camera that had to film us walking down the hallway, which was really awkward. Um, and we were just kind of like, had to be like held yeah, aside and like, yeah, it was like, we had to do it a couple times and like walking into the office, um, which was which was strange because we didn't really, ex we weren't really thinking about it before going into it that there was really gonna be media there. Like it was obviously like a, kind of an expectation um, because there was gonna be a press conference. But it was strange in general, so yeah. Um, wait, what? Okay, so a few minutes later, we were sitting at a table in the meeting room, and before we knew it, we were shaking hands with the Premier of Ontario, and the meeting had begun. So it was the meeting was really quick, but it was super interesting. Um, she was really friendly and supportive and amazing, and like I felt like I had accomplished something really amazing at so, such a young age. And I think Tessa probably felt the same way. And I remember she, her saying that her first like um, act of activism, I guess, was getting girls to wear pants in her high school. I'm pretty sure. So that was pretty cool. I mean, it was like something we could relate to. Obviously, it was a very different time and like we could see how far feminism has come since then but it was just interesting to hear her talking about what she did when she was younger um, and once it was over as soon as we got outside we were circled by media like so many cameras so many lights so many microphones like we were both so overwhelmed and we didn't really know which camera to look at because there was honestly so many um, like it was like one of the scariest moments of my life, but like I remember just afterwards just needing to take a breath and be like, okay, there's like no more cameras, right? There was so much pressure. Like they didn't know when to stop asking questions. So we had like, um, we had someone from 
who was helping us like from change.org with the entire petition and like we didn't know what to do so we just kind of stood there like as they asked us stuff and she'd be like okay last question and there was like lights on our faces yeah it was, and it, it was just <laughs> yeah I'm really thankful that she was there and that's like she was able to support us because like we had never really dealt with that like um as Tessa was saying like the most media we'd ever done was really like phone interviews on the bathroom floor of our school so it kind of went from that to like being circled by a bunch of different TV programs and having multiple questions being asked you asked to us at once like I don't know how I'm supposed to answer two questions at the same time um um do you want to um yes yeah, so in the end for us though um the biggest accomplishment of like what we did I don't really think was being in Queen's Park and being the premier was more like the fact that the conversation was happening and the amount of um, support that we had online, like through the petition and through media um, and on social media from people, from young people and um, young and old people um, who, who uh, really supported what we were doing and also um, telling us about how the fact that there wasn't enough information about sex ed when they were younger, how that um, had impacted them as they were growing up and how it had impacted them in the moment as well. So that for us, I think was super important. And also the fact that like as, as young people, like our voices were being heard. And at the same time though, like recognizing that the fact that we got as much attention as we did also had to do with the amount of privilege that we had as like white cis women, um, that, that if, we hadn't gone to, if we hadn't lived our lives to how we did and gone to the middle school that we did, and um, there's so many uh, factors that that made this happen, and we're really lucky, and I think a lot of it was chance, but we were also like, super passionate about it. Um, um, and overall, I think it was strange being a young person in a place um, like Queens Park in specific, but also just in many places, like it's something, it's an experience that we we had and we continue to have as we um, okay, so go to events up, and speak in um, places and talk to people talk to about, about issues art. like rape culture and um, uh, youth activism and education, where we speak in spaces that aren't Hello. intended for young people to close. be a part of them. Okay. They're not really um, accessible. And it's wow, usually like, where big shout like out to We Give Consent, because I, really I like, didn't know a goddamn um, thing in the eighth grade. I didn't do anything. There's a lot of... All I did was, like, look up song kind of lyrics for my MSN stuff. Um, <laughs> but that's also... I thought that was, like, really like deep. Shameless is so important. Um, okay. Because um, need more spaces for young people. Well, so... Um, where they can be supported in their activism should, like, and supported um, in their learning. And... I think yeah, overall, I'm just making kid. like these um, conversations and the overall conversations Hannah, that usually happen, my like, name. Um, um, and about uh, my culture I'm an more accessible and, uh, because and um, no single Toronto. issue affects one um, single group in the same way. So, and uh, um, yeah, so like when Amanda that. like reached out to me and yeah, like said so that they wanted people to tell a story about how they got I definitely had to think sort of a long time about that because. I mean, when I when I look, oh shit! <laughs> okay, <laughs> keep my hands to myself. <laughs> Sorry, I just got my nails done. So, <laughs> um, anyways, um, so I was like thinking about just sort of experiences that I had had when I was younger, and I mean, obviously on a subconscious level, um, 
a lot of the things that I had experienced as a child, like being an immigrant kid and being the kid of immigrants, like I think obviously subconsciously those experiences drove me towards like wanting to be sort of involved in like advocacy and activism and such. But um, I couldn't really like pinpoint like a specific experience. So um, I thought about it long and hard. And I think one of the most sort of like defining moments for me that that sort of got me involved in activism and doing a lot of like writing um, and art that sort of talked about feminism and social justice um, and exploring things like wellness and body politics was probably around the time that I was in university. So um, I went to school for journalism at Ryerson. I graduated in 2015. Um, so initially when I was going to university, I was like really stoked because I thought it was going to be this like super progressive like safe haven, which is, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> um, so I thought I was going to be like surrounded by like all these people who wanted to be these like hard hitting journalists. But I mean, as we know, the state of the media, that's not at all who goes into journalism. <laughs> um, so when I started school, like, so towards the end of high school, I started like getting more involved in like just like reading about feminism and sort of getting educated. Like this was also when like Tumblr was getting like really big. So I was like accessing a lot of my information from like social justice blogs on Tumblr, which like thank goodness for those because it, it is a really great source of like free education for young people. Um, but I, I still didn't really have like a very nuanced understanding of these things. Like I was sort of lost. Um, and uh, by the time I got to university, I started sort of like getting more involved in like talking about these things, um, uh, talking about particularly like misogyny and racism. Um, and when I started school, I the more I talked about these things, the more I became uh, very alienated from my peers. I think it upset a lot of my peers that I was like consistently calling people out a lot. Um, and uh, so that, you know, I kind of went into university thinking that it wasn't going to be high school and that, like, now I'm going to be popular and, like, I'm going to get invited to parties and shit, but I didn't. So, <laughs> um, because, you know, a lot of people, when I would start talking about, like, very, very basic ideas of privilege, it would just anger a lot of my peers who, like, didn't want to believe that they had things in their life that they didn't work for, that they were just born having. Um, for arbitrary reasons. So by the time I was like, so I, I had sort of just been continuously um, being really outspoken in university and like going to like different like meetings and lectures and panels and just like learning all of this information. So by the time I was in my third year, I decided to start like my own blog and talk about just different, um, different topics around the general theme of social justice and they were mostly very like personal posts so I would just talk about different experiences in my life as a brown Muslim woman and um, so when I was sort of talking about these things um, so for example like one of the one of the subjects that I talked about on my blog was like I talked about being a young brown girl and being sort of socialized and conditioned to like want the white male gaze and feeling more validated by white men. So I would talk about these things and I thought, you know, these were like pretty basic ideas. I wasn't really saying anything that was so like radical or revolutionary, but it got a lot of hatred from my peers who were like educated, privileged people. So it also sort of gave me a lesson in classism because I assumed that because my peers were educated in a university that they would be very progressive. And I learned later that a person's credentials are completely irrelevant. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be really enlightened or really fantastic. So 
I've started to get a lot of hate. Um, the only people who really read my blog were like people that I knew because like it, it wasn't big, it wasn't famous. I would just post it on Facebook and people would read it. Um, and so my peers would always comment and they'd be angry. I got like unfriended by my white peers. I would get chastised by like my white male peers who just absolutely hated me because like, you know, I was like that brown girl who was just like always saying stuff. So um, it, it became a very, very like heavy time in my life. I carried a lot of anger with me when I was in university. Um, that's one thing that's really hard with activism is um, if you don't know a way, like an outlet for your anger, you just begin to carry an enormous amount of just anger and sadness in you. Um, so anyway, so I was going to school every day just feeling like absolute crap. Like I had never even, like I hated high school, but I had never even felt like that bad in high school. I felt extremely visible. I felt really brown. Like I just felt really brown in that space, you know? And um, I hated feeling that visible and just being that hated for like saying things that I didn't really think were really that big of a deal. So the peak of all of this resulted in, I got like a hate stalker on this blog. This person who would like wait for like, fuck within, oh my God, move out of my way. Jesus, <laughs> it's bothering me. Oh no, I think I need it, Never mind. Okay. <laughs> okay, so basically, so I got this hate stalker. So within like five minutes of every post, this person would be there. So they went under an anonymous name, of, as these people always do. Um, and, but I was like, to this day, I'm like 99% sure it was actually one of my peers. In university, okay? Like, I thought this was like some high school level bullshit, but this was in third year university. So I was 100% sure that one of my peers was basically like hate stalking my blog. Because it, like, they would comment as soon as my stuff went up. Like, right that second. And I would only put this up on Facebook. So they would just comment these really, really vicious things. They were always tearing me apart. They were always telling me like how horrible I was and that I was being like reverse racist and man-hating and whatever these things are supposed to mean. So, um, so it was just like, it was um, a very difficult time and I started to feel like more and more alienated and I just felt like I was like just hated and that this blog was a burden and I would get nervous and anxious when I would publish a post and I almost wanted to stop writing and I didn't want to put anything up and like I would even put up like little comics on my uh on my blog that like I drew and um I would feel just iffy about putting those up and I thought like this person's gonna come back and they were there like clockwork like it's like I could always rely on this hate stalker to come and hate on me like whenever I put this stuff up so um it just became like a very, very like dark time in my life to constantly have this person there and to have nobody ever stand up for me. None of my other peers ever got involved. Nobody ever had my back. I had a lot of peers that had a lot more privilege than I did who would sort of say like to my face like, oh, that's really great that you're doing this work, but they would never show up. So like allyship is about showing up for people and they never showed up for me. So I started feeling really devastated by that. Then finally, one day, this random guy, like this just random cis male dude came in and started fighting with the hate stalker. And he was like tearing him apart and he was like standing up for me. And I was just like shocked. Like I was so, I was just 
it just elevated me so much that somebody randomly online in this blog that nobody gave a crap about came in and saw this guy who was like incessantly bothering me and came and told him to stop and told him to get out of my online space and told him to stop policing what I was saying. And it was, I was absolutely shocked. So after this happened, eventually I ended up shutting down the blog because it just got too stressful. But I decided that I, would, I wanted to find the guy who had stood up for me. Um, so I ended up finding him on Twitter and I like sent him a message and I was like, hey, like, you know, I remember you, you came to my aid when I had this like random blog and like it's just really like it changed my life that somebody stood up for me. And it kind of started make me like it made me realize the power of advocacy work and how when you do simple things like you just tell someone to stop when they're being terrible to another person, you can have a, a massive effect on a person because one of the big issues with our society is the amount of complacency that people have with seeing oppression. People will just stand and watch it like it's like like it's entertainment. People will just stand and watch violence. And so when you're that one person who steps in even just to say something kind to someone experiencing that, it does a lot. So when that person did that for me, I wanted to also be that person. I didn't just want to be just voicing my own views, but I wanted to be there for others who are voicing their views and who were just getting attacked for it, which is something that we're seeing a lot now when it comes to social media, like online harassment is a form of violence. And there are so many people, especially those who are most marginalized, most vulnerable, who are being just like preyed upon on the internet by this sort of um, far right sort of violence. They attack you and attack you and attack you until you have no like energy left to keep talking about these things. But if other people step in and they have your back and you have a support system, it makes your advocacy and your cause that much stronger. So that's sort of why I started getting involved in, um, so one of the main like works or series of art that I do is called Affirmations and I make these like positive affirmation pieces every week. And they're really simple things, like they just have really simple phrases like, you know, you deserve a safe space or it's okay to cry and things like that. But sometimes just having those little reminders that we're so often not getting when there's just like this vicious culture of hate that's happening online, those little reminders can really like change a person's life. So that's one of the reasons that I, I sort of got involved. But before I finish, I just want to tell one last story because it's really good. It's a good one. Okay. This one's more of like a badass kind of story about another reason why. So after this whole blog debacle happened and that guy stood up for me and I was feeling really powerful, I was like, yeah, like nobody can mess with me now. Like people will come to my aid. I started believing that, you know what, no matter what, people will come to my aid. So um, I started getting really tough. Like I was like tough girl. So um, in one of my classes, there was a, a man, a man, <laughs> um, and uh, he was horrible. And he was like really misogynistic and racist. He was always like using like homophobic slurs against people. And he was just the worst of the worst. He was a bully. And uh, one day we were in tutorial and I noticed that Everyone else was raising their hand to speak, and he just kept interrupting people. And he never raised his hand to speak. He just kept speaking. And it just made me realize that, like, cishet men, just, they just start talking. They just start talking all the time. 
everyone else raising their hand, he would just start talking. And I just thought, what makes this guy think that his opinion is that important? It's 100% not. So, so I was talking, and then he interrupted me, which, like, <laughs> I was like, okay, well, there. So I, like, lost it. At this point, just all this rage had been bubbling up in me because I had just endured so much bullshit in that program that I snapped on him. Like, I just, I turned, and I was like, uh, don't interrupt me. I didn't see you put your hand up. And I was like, you can start talking when I'm finished. And everyone was just like, oh. Okay? And then he looked at the TA, and the TA, who was like this really timid woman, was just like, oh, yeah, you know, you should put your hand up. So she was on my side. So I was like, okay. So after this happened, he went like a little piss baby to Twitter and was like, somebody blocked my freedom of speech today in class. And I was like, that's me. I did it. <laughs> so uh, then he like blocked and everything on Twitter. But the best part was that every day since, he never looked me in the eye. So I would like see him in the hall and he would never look me in the eye. So you stand up to people, they're scared of you. They do not expect anyone to stand up to them. Like these haters online try to act tough, but they don't got anything on you. Like they're, they're scared. So um, yeah, if someone ever interrupts you, don't take that. <laughs> tell them off. And yeah, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> our next group, and it's the members of the Degenerates Toronto. Hey, hi. The Degenerates is like a bike gang, but with no bike requirements. It's for those of us who are queer and trans and non-binary and just fucking weird. It's where we break things and rebuild them better. It's where we create a safer community by supporting ourselves and others. Where we take up space through protest and disruption in a world that tries to tell us who and what to be. It's something that we need. Because people can be arrested at a rally for nothing more than looking like everything the right hates because we have so many gifts and skills and so many things to learn and to teach each other. Because community is what keeps us alive. Because we need a place to remember how to be ourselves. Because when a femme in a pink dress and a handlebar mustache asks you to join her gang at an art fair, and what she says feels more real than anything else has felt in a long time, you say yes. Because we all need a crew to go to marches with. Because everything might be going to shit, but we have plans, we have dreams, and most of all, we have each other. Because we've made our own family. Because when you're drowning in a sea of straightness, sometimes you just need to read tarot with a bunch of queers. Because sometimes you just need to smash things and you need people to understand that. Because sometimes 
Resistance is just getting our gay asses to a meeting when all we want to do is stay in bed. Because doing the work is important. Because doing work together is important. Because we are everywhere and they can't deny that. Because surviving is a collaboration. Because our feelings are in motion. Because all the old things might be burning, but we'd rather be the fire. Because we're all sick and tired, but we are angry and we are strong. We recognize that there are divisions in the queer LGBTQ2SAAI, etc. community. While we've been named in the same abbreviation, there can be a lot of prevalent racism, anti-blackness, transphobia in the community because not all cis, non-straight folks are anti-racist, decolonial, or any less part of patriarchy than cis straight folk are. The degenerates is an opportunity, a call to action for those with intersectional politics, one that acknowledges and fights against racism, anti-blackness, transphobia, Islamophobia, ableism, and all of the other myriad ways the world tries to grind us down. Because some members of our community don't have a choice, because they fight for their lives every day, because some of us are black and queer and disabled, because some of us will always have a target on our backs. The degenerates are more than just a group of shared identities. We are more than our collective labels of gender or sexuality. We are ready to act in solidarity and an understanding of what it means to call ourselves a community, of how that makes us responsible and to whom we are accountable. So if you're ready to do the work, if you need to do the work, come find us. Come find us! <laughs> Our final speaker for the night is Claire A.H. Let's give her a round of applause. Hi, everybody. My name is Claire A.H. and I am like a sex educator, a queer matchmaker, student, a podcaster, radio host, and disabled lady. Um, I've always been really political. Um, my grandmother uh, took my sister and I around our neighborhood and we walked by uh, a protest at an abortion clinic and she whipped a glass bottle at the, the men and said, you'll never know what this is, and ran away really fast. So. Between her and my very politically active mother, I've always felt kind of safe in the political world. I identify as a queer fat femme, so I came out when I was 12 and it was kind of somewhat of a non-issue and I had my sort of like, am I bisexual? Am I whatever? What does this mean? And then I found the word queer and that just kind of settled that. Um, as for fatness, you know, I, I have taught some body positivity workshops. I, you know, everybody struggles with their body from time to time, but like, I, I felt comfortable in my, my political world, in my body, in my sexuality, and as a sex educator, um, I tried to be kind of sex neutral. Uh, want me to stop? <laughs> I tried to be kind of sex neutral, not assuming that sex positivity is the best for everybody, but that sexuality and information about sexuality should be accessible to everybody. Whether they want to partake or not, it should be available. Um, in general, I was kind of working towards being mindful and intersectional, and um, I was always specifically interested in disability. Toronto has a great uh, 
sexuality and disability oriented community, but I never really felt like it was my place. And actually on May 20th, 2015, I was doing, uh, I used to be a burlesque dancer, and I was doing a performance at the Best Sex Writing Launch, and uh, my friend Andrew Gerza, who is a wheelchair user and is a queer sex educator um, talking about disability, we were kind of really having a good talk about how I would like to be more involved in talking about disability, but I just didn't feel like it was my place. So I wanted to, to prop people up, I wanted to learn, I wanted to be less ableist in the work that I did, but it just, you know, you can be empathetic about something, but you don't really get it, and so I wanted to just kind of know where I stood. And then six hours later, I had the second and third of the th three strokes I would have that week. The first was a minor stroke, and then the second and third uh, left me with substantial impairments, um, cognitively, physically, uh, in terms of sensation. And so I spent a good month and a half in the hospital and in inpatient rehab. So during that time, I, uh, I experienced a lot of sexual eraser, erasure. Mainly, I didn't experience any discussion ever about sexuality in any form. And one of my main symptoms is that half of my body, I can't feel anything. So that includes my genitals, internally and externally. And um, it was only when I started to speak to other disabled people, specifically disabled people who worked in sexuality, um, academics and students who felt that they had been barred from really addressing sexuality, especially within um, within discussing it in a healthcare component. And certainly when I was speaking with friends of mine who were occupational therapists or physiotherapists or social workers who worked with people with disabilities found that they themselves were not really able to discuss or at least prioritize the discussion of sexuality with disabled people of various different experiences. So um, I think I was, I was interested in general issues of accessibility, but I feel like between you know folks at Access Now, folks at Stopgap, there are lots of people on that work, but there aren't as many people focusing specifically on sexuality. And my politics were really formulated around the discussions I had um, with other people, and then I tried to insert myself as I got better, as I looked for, for some meaning in my experience with disability, and kind of looked to the things that were most difficult for me, and what I found was most underrepresented in uh, the discuss discussions I had with people working with disability and people experiencing disability. So I started going to conferences, doing interviews and features, writing, doing talks, and sometimes they were academic, sometimes they were within the world of sexuality discussing disability, sometimes they were, they were within the world of disability discussing sexuality, sometimes they were both, sometimes they were um, fairly colloquial, fairly accessible, other times they were working with professionals, and over and over I was able to zero in on the fact that healthcare in general not so focused on sexuality, especially in terms of pleasure. And that is even more true with disability. I kept, as I, as I have, I went back to school, I've started uh, studying, focusing around uh, health psychology and also critical disability. And in both worlds, what I'm gathering is that it's a taboo to enjoy yourself. It's a taboo when you are on ODSP, it's a taboo when you are seen as a non-sexual person or a less sexual person to engage in pleasure. When we discuss health, when we discuss disability and sex, it's about either cis men, 
sexual function or um, specifically about procreation and either safer sex or contraception, but never within just sex for the sake of sex, um, and especially when that involves a discussion of body positivity and the way we look at people with disabilities as non-sexual people in the world. Um, so I kind of slowly but surely got into the political side through these discussions and then through kind of inserting myself into various different communities and being vocal about this, but I got my most my biggest kick in the ass uh, when I worked with a friend of mine, uh, Natalie Rose, on a paper discussing not only sex and disability and the erasure of sex and disability within healthcare and within um, kind of the rehabilitation world, but specifically my story. So I went out there and I was very, very frank. And I was frank, but also professional using the language that would be accepted by um, an academic journal. Not a lot of colloquialisms, not a lot of slang. It was not titillating. I used words like missionary. <laughs> not particularly exciting. So we were accepted to a journal of fairly good repute. And then we got uh, an email from the head editor with substantial edits to, uh, to just completely take out any discussion of sex in this article about sex and disability. The word missionary was removed, and it was specifically discussing the context of a neck injury and how that position is difficult. So if you take away the term missionary, then you're just talking about sexual intercourse, which is a fairly unclear thing. There's also some discussion of anal sex, and anal sex, not, you know, really intense discussions of it, just the word anal, that was removed, and it was kind of like looking through a redacted, so it was this long journal that just got shortened and didn't make any sense and didn't make a point, it was just this kind of like weird toothless thing that said, ah, people with disabilities should maybe have sex or be able to talk about it, I don't know, we should think about that, right? Um, and it was really disappointing, and also all of the discussions I had had with students and academics and people who had engaged with not only the academic system, but the healthcare system suddenly pulled into focus because even though it was my story, it was everybody's story. And it was the fact that we can't even use the most antiseptic, acceptable language to discuss sex when we have been approved to talk about sex. So um, that was kind of horrifying because I felt very raw and vulnerable about it, but also, all of my, my other academic work, all of a sudden, I felt cautious about putting sex into papers, putting sex into discussion topics, and applying to other conferences of an academic nature uh, to talk about sex. But you have to resist. And my way of resistance is absolutely colored by the fact that I am privileged to be able to access academic spaces, to be able to seem fairly non-threatening, to be able to seem like I fit into that world comfortably and uh, but then I try to be visible, I try to be outspoken using the experiences that I've had personally as a sex educator and as somebody who was denied any discussion of sexuality in my entire rehabilitation process. Um, 
So I want to prioritize in my work. And the biggest thing was shopping around until we found a journal that would accept it. We did. Thanks, American Journal of Occupational Therapy. Uh, <laughs> but really, this is about being able to dis dis disrupt the healthcare, rehabilitation, and therapy worlds, which are so ingrained in this idea of the medical model of disability, where we need to be cured, where we need to focus on function only, where enjoyment of life and pleasure and anything from you know good food to going out to prioritizing things that maybe are not seen as gainful in our capitalist society um and just fucking that up by being unapologetically frank about the possibility of sexuality for people with disabilities and and being able to impact and change both the policy about that and the, the actual practice so it's hard to do, and especially when people think you're a nice disabled person with, like, you know, a nice cane girl. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to disappoint people and to horrify them, but it's a wonderful covert uh, ability that I do not take lightly. Thank you.